On August 4, 1964, Captain John Herrick peered through the windows of the USS Maddox just off the coast of North Vietnam. Rain and wind pounded the ship. Violent waves obscured any view he had of the sea before him. In a split second, one of his sonarmen beckoned him over. There was something on the radar. Herrick rushed to his side and looked at the five small blips moving quickly across the screen. Only one thing could travel so fast, enemy boats. The captain picked up the intercom and ordered everyone to battle stations. But within minutes, the blips had inexplicably disappeared. Herrick had never seen anything like this before. So unsure of exactly what to do, he instructed his men to stay at their posts, ready for battle. And sure enough, the blips returned. This time, though, they came from new directions. To Herrick's dismay, the blips seemed to be closing in on the USS Maddox from all sides. A feeling of panic settled over Herrick, and he sprung into action. He called out for his men to begin their attack. Those aboard the USS Maddox and its sister ship, the USS Turner Joy, fought the enemy boats all night. It was the first time the United States had engaged in battle with the North Vietnamese directly. And later that night, President Lyndon Johnson took to the airwaves to tell Americans of the attack. Retaliation would come, he warned, and within months, the U.S. would officially enter the Vietnam War. There was just one problem. The August 4th battle may have never happened. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes... It's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Gulf of Tonkin. In August of 1964, U.S. naval destroyers were attacked by North Vietnamese boats. The incident led to an escalation of American troops in Vietnam. But declassified documents have since shown that the attack may have never occurred. So this time, we'll explore the official story. We'll see how tension rose between Vietnam and the United States and discuss how one fateful night in the Gulf of Tonkin may have caused the Vietnam War. Next time, we'll explore some conspiracy theories around the incident. We'll consider why many think the incident was a ruse. Then we'll investigate whether President Lyndon B. Johnson knew the attack didn't happen, but lied about it in order to enter the Vietnam War and propel his re-election. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. To understand what happened on August 4th, 1964, we need to go back nearly 20 years to 1946, at that time, the world was still reeling from the effects of World War II. 
With peace treaties still ongoing, everyone was aware that the balance of power was still very fragile and easily broken. Global leaders were on edge. So when Vietnam descended into the first Indochina War later that year, world powers watched the conflict with trepidation. There, the Viet Minh, a national front organization led by communists, fought for independence from their French colonizers. On the one side, a European nation and ally of the United States fought for so-called Western values. On the other, Vietnamese communists fought for freedom against their occupier. But the White House saw the Indochina War differently, as a looming existential threat in the larger scheme of the Cold War. To the government in Washington, the outcome could result in a dangerous shifting of world power. As far as the U.S. was concerned, nothing was more threatening in Vietnam than a communist win. For years, the Truman administration chose to remain out of the conflict, instead allowing France and the Viet Minh, backed by China and the Soviet Union, to battle it out. But when the USSR tested its own atomic bomb in August of 1949, the global situation escalated. The Soviet Union had been working on its own atomic bomb since the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. It had taken the Americans three years to develop the technology, with the world's most sophisticated scientists working on the project around the clock. It was only a matter of time before Joseph Stalin would acquire the technology himself. And that day came on August 29, 1949, when the Soviet military exploded its first atomic bomb. The successful detonation was an eerie turning point. Now, the United States wasn't the only country in the world with nuclear capabilities. This fear was driven by a rise in communism amongst former allies. Though just five years earlier, China had worked alongside the U.S. in World War II, by late 1949, it had come under communist rule. Many Americans feared that if it could happen to the Chinese, it could happen at home. Tensions continued to mount when China formally recognized the Communist Democratic Republic of Vietnam. In some ways, this political move all but ratified it into existence. Americans feared that before long, other countries would formally recognize the communist nation. During the early 1950s, both China and the Soviet Union continued funding the communist effort to fight the French in Vietnam. Once again, the United States saw this as a clear effort to spread communism throughout Southeast Asia. In response to the growing crisis, the U.S. provided military and financial support to the French armed forces. But in May 1954, a 55-day siege on a French garrison in Vietnam caused the French to pull out of the country. This move forced world players to the negotiation table. Soon after, representatives from the U.S., United Kingdom, Vietnam, France, China, Cambodia, Laos, and the Soviet Union met in Geneva to discuss the situation in Southeast Asia. Together, the countries agreed to divide Vietnam into two. North Vietnam would be ruled by the communists, and South Vietnam would be led by a U.S.-backed government. 
The two countries would be split at the 17th parallel by a demilitarized zone. This divide, though, was to be temporary. In 1956, the governments were to come together to hold elections and select new leaders who would unify the country once and for all. All of the participants at the conference signed the treaty, except for the United States and South Vietnam. Because the leader of North Vietnam's Communist Party, Ho Chi Minh, was widely popular, the U.S. feared that North Vietnamese leaders would win the election in a landslide. And if that happened, the entire country would come under communist control. President Dwight D. Eisenhower believed that this would create a domino effect throughout Southeast Asia. If one country fell to communism, others would soon follow. The threat of Southeast Asia and the Soviet Union all unified under communist values loomed large. When the time finally came for North and South Vietnam to hold elections, the South refused to participate. This only furthered domestic tensions. With the support of the Soviet Union and China, North Vietnam continued its fight to unify Vietnam under the communist banner. While a domestic conflict on the other side of the world wasn't top of mind for most Americans, the White House watched the battles carefully. The domino effect that Eisenhower warned about felt imminent. And as the conflict became increasingly violent in Vietnam, these fears were only exacerbated. It wouldn't be long before the communists took over the entire country. By 1962, President John F. Kennedy, who took office the year before, increased the number of U.S. military advisors deployed to Vietnam. Given that the Soviet Union and China were actively supporting the North Vietnamese regime, JFK was nervous about what might happen if the U.S. directly battled northern Vietnam. He understood that when it came to the Soviets and Chinese, there was no room for error. But Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson seemed less worried about intervention. When he rose to the presidency after JFK's assassination in 1963, he increased U.S. commitments to the region. He soon authorized increased naval patrols along the coast of North Vietnam. Operating under the codename DeSoto, these patrols were used to monitor communications between China and North Vietnam. This way, the Americans would be privy to secret discussions between the countries. They would know about attacks before they happened and could respond proactively to impending threats. Not only were American ships spying on North Vietnam's defense operation, its military also began running missions into North Vietnam, hoping to prohibit their movements and resources into or within South Vietnam. In 1964, American boats transported South Vietnamese fighters to conduct raids against North Vietnam. These troops even targeted enemy facilities. It wasn't long before North Vietnam connected these raids to the American ships floating out at sea. In retaliation, North Vietnam sent their own patrol boats, known as PT boats, out into the sea. The ships monitored the waters for enemies and threatened to fire upon anyone who came too close to shore. In the summer of 1964, they followed through on their threats. On August 2nd, the USS Maddox sat in the Gulf of Tonkin as part of the DeSoto patrols. 
The naval ship was longer than a football field and armed with multiple torpedoes. The destroyer posed a formidable target to any PT boat. That morning, the Maddox sailed 28 miles off the North Vietnamese coast on a routine patrol mission. The ship was in good hands with Captain John J. Herrick at the helm. Herrick had been in the Navy for two decades and handled complex missions with ease. However, Herrick had not anticipated the sudden arrival of three torpedo boats on the radar. They were closing in on the Maddox with tremendous speed. In response, the men aboard the Maddox fired three warning shots near the incoming boats. This warning had no effect. The North Vietnamese enemy ships kept speeding towards the Maddox. The captain was caught in a difficult situation. Despite the fact that his ship may be coming under attack, there was little he could do. The Maddox was positioned in international waters and had no standing orders to engage with the North Vietnamese. Herrick was painfully aware that if the USS Maddox destroyed the boats, there'd be no turning back. The United States would be, for all intents and purposes, a full participant in the war. So the captain made the safe choice. He ordered the Maddox to retreat and called in air support. Within minutes, American planes barraged the torpedo boats. U.S. forces killed four and wounded six North Vietnamese soldiers over international waters that day. While this was still an escalation in the conflict, it was widely considered a minor incident. When reports of the attack landed on President Johnson's desk, he didn't flinch. He didn't launch a retaliatory strike or even inform the public about it. However, just two days later, his perspective changed completely as tensions across the world mounted. Coming up, a nocturnal battle in the Gulf of Tonkin. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Colts podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Now, back to the story. In the early 1960s, the United States government tried to contain the spread of communism in Vietnam by supporting the South Vietnamese. The country had indicated it ultimately wanted to align with more Western trade and cultural ideologies. 
The Americans provided arms, training, and even positioned naval destroyers less than 30 miles from the North Vietnamese coast. So after the August 2nd, 1964 attack on the USS Maddox, President Johnson ordered the American vessel back out to sea. He believed that if the United States didn't resume its regular patrols, it would appear weak, and the U.S. couldn't allow a small country like North Vietnam to push around one of their ships. On the morning of August 4th, U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara was at his desk in Washington, D.C. when he received a call from the Pentagon. They told him they'd intercepted a message from North Vietnam that detailed a possible impending attack on U.S. ships in the Gulf of Tonkin. McNamara called President Johnson immediately. When LBJ heard the news, he wanted to know one thing. If North Vietnam attacked U.S. ships, how soon could the United States hit them back? McNamara told him that the military could proceed as soon as the commander-in-chief gave the order. He even offered the president a list of potential targets if the North Vietnamese launched an offensive against the U.S. Navy. Johnson and McNamara convened with their advisors and formulated possible responses to the impending attack. Then, the men waited for the North Vietnamese to complete the planned ambush. In the meantime, the Department of Defense radioed U.S. vessels in the Gulf of Tonkin. Captain Herrick understood immediately that if a battle did occur that night, there would be no turning back. It would be war. To give the ship more room for maneuvers, Herrick ordered the destroyer to pull back from the coastline. The Maddox was accompanied by the USS Turner Joy, a vessel just as large and intimidating as its sister ship. That evening, the two destroyers sat about 65 miles from the shore, waiting for the North Vietnamese to make their move. At around 8 p.m. on August 4th, Captain Herrick peered out of the window. Outside, a storm raged. Six-foot waves splashed onto the deck of the Maddox. Minutes passed without any action. Then, all of a sudden, Herrick's sonarman called out to him. The captain hurried over and inspected the screen. Five blips flashed before him, which he believed had to be torpedo boats. The message had been true. The attack was on. But a moment later, the five blips disappeared. The captain tried to look out the window, but the rain and waves obscured his view. In naval warfare, a ship could attack from as far as 10,000 yards away, but Herrick could barely see 300 yards in front of him. Fearful that what was out there might reappear, he ordered all of his men to their stations. Then he waited. About half an hour later, the sonarman called out again. The blips had reappeared and they were moving fast. Similarly, on the USS Maddox's sister ship, the Turner Joy, a commander saw the same thing. His sonarman had detected blips that he was sure were torpedoes barreling towards the U.S. vessels. Any minute, they'd hit the destroyers. He had to act fast. When the blips came within 8,000 yards, the Maddox opened fire. They unloaded shell after shell at the suspected torpedoes. Simultaneously, the Turner Joy fired its weapons. But when the Turner Joy's commander looked over at the other ship, 
he noticed something strange. Both ships seemed to be shooting at random. It was as if neither knew where the enemy truly was. Blinded by the storm, the crews on both ships shot indiscriminately at where they thought the radar blips were coming from. Desperate to get a better visual on the enemy, Herrick ordered his crew to fire 24 star shells, meant solely to illuminate the skies. The objects exploded on and above the water, lighting up everything in the gulf. But it was futile. The captain couldn't spot the enemy in the murky waters. Herrick radioed for air support, and soon, American fighter planes appeared overhead. They used whatever they had at their disposal to light up the gulf. The pilots dropped flares, hoping that their red glow would uncover the targets. But it was no use. The enemy was still out of sight. And no matter what they tried, the Americans couldn't get an eye on the target. All they saw was an ocean covered in the red hue of flares and gunfire. Despite the lack of visuals, the radar continued to pick up enemy units. In fact, one seemed to move more rapidly than the others, and it was coming straight for the Maddox. Remember, these ships were massive. The USS Maddox stretched just over 375 feet, larger than a football field. And the Turner Joy was even bigger than the Maddox. These vessels waded slowly in the waters and took an immense amount of time to turn. With hundreds of men, weapons, and boats aboard, neither destroyer was made for quick maneuvers. Avoiding enemy fire was nearly impossible, but Herrick tried his best to turn his Goliath vessel into an agile speedboat. He commanded that the 3,300-ton ship turn as quickly as possible. A few seconds later, they heard a whooshing sound in the water. It seemed like the torpedo had just missed them. But it wasn't the last. The Maddox received more reports of incoming torpedoes, and each time, the 3,300-ton ship barreled through the waves to narrowly avoid disaster. At a certain point, one of the battleships dropped a depth bomb into the water. If it worked, the enemy submarine would be forced to the surface by the explosion. Then the crew could fire on the submarine directly and end the battle once and for all. As the bomb descended into the water, the crew waited. Then suddenly, the water gurgled and a large bubble encircled the target. And finally, a boom. The power of the explosion pushed water out of the ocean, creating a large water spout that would cause destruction to any enemy ship. But the crew saw nothing. The men on board were baffled. A depth bomb like the one they dropped should have caused at least some damage. And yet, there was no evidence that anything had happened. Confirming their dread, the sonarmen reported that they couldn't confirm any direct hits on the radar. In the air, the situation wasn't much better. The destroyers below conveyed enemy positions to the pilots, but when the plane swooped down, the sea appeared empty. There was even a point in the evening when the disorganization nearly turned fatal. After one miscommunication, a pilot believed he received an order to bomb the enemy ships heading south. When he looked down in the water, he saw two ships sailing southward. He began his attack. As he leveled out, he put the targets in his sights and rested his finger on the bomb release switch. 
He thought he was about to destroy two enemy PT boats. Then a voice came over the radio. It ordered him to hold fire. The pilot was about to bomb the Maddox and Turner Joy. So the airman pulled up and exhaled. He'd nearly avoided a disaster. Aboard the USS Maddox, Captain Herrick worried they were being outmaneuvered. At this rate, they'd never hit the enemy. Each time they thought they were close, the blips on the radar disappeared or evaded their fire. Though the destroyers repeatedly fired on the enemy that night, both ultimately failed to confirm a direct hit. It was like they were fighting phantoms. Around 10.45 p.m., the crew on the Turner saw a spotlight waiting in the darkness. They believed that it belonged to a North Vietnamese PT boat, searching for survivors in the water or calling for assistance from nearby vessels. The crew wanted to investigate the PT boats, but the lights were about 10 miles away. Given how large and slow the destroyers were, there was no way that either the Maddox or Turner Joy could capture them or even get close enough to see who was aboard. Still, the mysterious light seemed to confirm that the enemy was out there. Just before midnight, after hours of fighting, Herrick ordered his ship to pull back. The Maddox and Turner Joy sailed to the southern end of the Gulf of Tonkin. There, the radar stopped picking up enemy boats and incoming torpedoes. By the early morning, Herrick ordered his men to be at ease. They could stand down. The battle was over. But the captain feared the calm may just be a brief lull before the beginning of a larger war. Herrick radioed his report to command. The United States had been attacked by the communist enemy. Within minutes, the story of the attack reached the Pentagon and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, who immediately alerted President Johnson. LBJ knew it was time to respond. Coming up, the White House strikes back. Now back to the story. On the night of August 4, 1964, the U.S. naval destroyers, the USS Maddox and Turner Joy, picked up numerous enemy boats on their radars. For hours, they tried to fire upon the North Vietnamese, but failed to log a single direct hit. Afterwards, the commanders reported the attack to the Pentagon, who relayed it to the White House. When President Johnson received Captain Herrick's report, his reaction was swift. He ordered his advisors to finalize a plan for a retaliatory strike. The United States would respond as soon as possible. The group eventually decided to target the North Vietnamese naval forces and a fuel facility in Vinh, one of the largest cities in North Vietnam. For the rest of the day, the White House coordinated with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Navy commanders in the Gulf of Tonkin. At 11.20 p.m., the administration received word that American planes had taken off about 40 minutes prior from an aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin and were on their way to Vin. Then, just as the mission was in process, President Johnson took to the airwaves. At 11.37 p.m., LBJ stood behind a podium and addressed the nation. In a solemn but stern voice, he informed American citizens that North Vietnam had attacked the United States Navy. He said that the U.S. response to the attacks was happening as he spoke. 
But that action wouldn't be the only retaliation. President Johnson said the country's efforts in Vietnam would be redoubled. He stated that this act of aggression by North Vietnam only highlighted the importance of the ongoing struggle for peace in Southeast Asia. Then, he delivered a critical piece of news. He'd spoken to both Democrat and Republican leaders who had agreed to support a resolution that endorsed the government's, quote, determination to take all necessary measures in support of freedom and in defense of peace in Southeast Asia. He assured the public that the resolution would be approved quickly because the urgency of the situation demanded it. The press covered the incident for days, keeping it on the front page and the top of Americans' minds. According to historian Edwin E. Moise, the press seemed to follow one main rule in reporting on the attack. Praise and don't question the actions of the U.S. military. And in hearing the news, some Americans likely wondered if the Soviet Union or China could have concocted the scheme themselves. After all, for years, the nation had been taught that the Red Menace might be lurking around every turn. Perhaps the Gulf of Tonkin was the beginning of a larger communist plot. Public support swaying heavily in favor of LBJ's handling of the Tonkin incident, and polls showed this. According to one survey, 85% of Americans approved of the president's response to the crisis. Feeling the public pressure to support the president's war, the House of Representatives voted unanimously on August 7th in favor of the Southeast Asia Resolution, later known as the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. Similarly, the Senate passed it by a margin of 88 to 2. The resolution read, quote, Congress approves and supports the determination of the president to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. At the time, members of Congress felt such a firm resolution was absolutely necessary. But after its passage, many of them realized the law's vague language could have dangerous consequences. The resolution gave the president the direct capacity to declare war. In the U.S. Constitution, Congress is the only body with that official power. But many had faith that Johnson wouldn't abuse that part of the resolution. Just three months later, in November 1964, Johnson won re-election in a landslide, winning 44 of 50 states in Washington, D.C., and defeating his opponent by 434 electoral votes. And by early the next year, he began his escalation of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Starting in February 1965, the United States Air Force conducted bombing runs across North Vietnam. They obliterated military bases, fuel storage facilities, and any bridges they thought could help the enemy. For the next two years, American jets would drop 864,000 tons of bombs on the country, that number was more than what had been used in the Korean War and in the Pacific Theater during World War II. In addition, Johnson sent in thousands of American soldiers. At the beginning of 1965, only 3,500 troops had boots on the ground in Vietnam. By the end of the year, though, the number ballooned to 180,000. 
As the war worsened and hopes of victory grew more dire, LBJ's approval rating dropped below 40%. Protesters gathered daily outside the White House, and political cartoons portraying Johnson as the defiant but failing president ran in newspapers across the country. At the same time, members of Congress became increasingly vocal that the operation was a needless waste of American life. By 1968, 30,000 U.S. soldiers had died in the conflict. By the end of American involvement in 1973, that amount would nearly double. Around 3 million Americans would serve in Vietnam, many of them under the age of 21. In the early 1970s, as the war continued despite the rising sentiment against it, the Tonkin Resolution became more controversial. But finally, in 1971, the Senate voted to repeal it. And to make sure this would not happen again, Congress passed the War Powers Act in 1973. The new law required that the president consult with Congress before involving American forces in overseas hostilities. But it did allow the president to use the military in certain instances, basically in national emergencies. The situation just had to be reported to Congress ASAP. In many ways, the legislation stripped away some of the president's military powers and made them beholden to Congress. But from another point of view, it paved the way for the executive branch to use the military at will. The president still held the power to decide what was a national emergency and when to use the armed forces at will. In this way, the War Powers Act may have laid the groundwork for future American wars. As the years passed, many began to question whether the Gulf of Tonkin incident actually occurred the way the government said it did. Over the next few decades, former naval officers, scholars, journalists, and other public servants studied the events on the night of August 4, 1964. They conducted interviews, reviewed North Vietnamese communications, and listened to recordings from the Oval Office. And many of these researchers have reached a startling conclusion. The Gulf of Tonkin incident was a lie. Next time, we'll try to figure out what actually happened in August of 1964 by exploring two conspiracy theories surrounding the Gulf of Tonkin. Such as conspiracy theory number one. The Gulf of Tonkin incident never actually happened. The U.S. naval destroyers mistakenly believed they were being attacked because of issues with the weather and their radar. This possibility will also lead us to conspiracy theory number two. President Lyndon B. Johnson and the United States government knew the Gulf of Tonkin battle didn't occur, but they lied to the American public so they could boost support to enter the Vietnam War. The conflict in Vietnam cost tens of thousands of Americans their lives, killed millions of Vietnamese citizens, and affected countless more people. But in the end, it may have only happened because of one man and his hunger for power. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. 
You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Gulf of Tonkin incident, amongst the many sources we used, we found Edwin E. Moise's book, Tonkin Gulf and the Escalation of the Vietnam War, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Colts podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash Colts. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait, there are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.